Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of the live stream Logistics with Purpose. This is our second one and I'm super excited and happy because we have an amazing show. Adrian, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Enrique. Excited to be here. It's a beautiful day here in, in Atlanta and uh, looking forward to the show ahead. We're going to have an amazing guest today and a great company and it's going to be very, very interesting. So how are you feeling in general, Adrian? Do you want to share any kind of positive news? Very, that has very positive. To I'm going to be, yeah, I'm going to be very, uh, this is a very self-centered, uh, positive news, but uh, I'm a workout nut and I've um, upped my the volume of exercise and frequency from January nice. this year and uh, any day that I can do five Days of vigorous exercise, which I did last week. Uh, for me, that's a positive week. So uh, that's uh, part and parcel of what helps to make uh, the week positive for me. Hey, I, um, Adrian and I worked together at Vector, and we had a chance to go down to uh, Querétaro a couple of years ago, and I had the opportunity to uh, work out with Adrian. He clearly kicked my butt, so keep <laughs> it going, Adrian, for next time. Um, and today, again, amazing guest. He's uh, the president, CEO, a visionary, a chemical engineer, a relentless leader. He has lived in Mexico, China, France, the Netherlands, traveled throughout the world, and uh, and he has an extensive background in medical devices, sustainability, and developing teams. Speaking of uh, sustainability, Adrian, I think uh, perfect timing for this episode. It absolutely, absolutely is. With uh, Earth Day tomorrow, uh, with a huge uh, focus, draws everyone's attention to uh, the environmental, environmental impact uh, that we have and uh, how necessary it is to to protect the environment uh, at all costs. And uh, our guest today is, uh, as Enrique says, CEO of a company that is um, focused on on helping others, helping the world uh, and delivering uh, sustainability. And um, in fact, uh, they're directly responsible for diverting 26 million pounds of wow. medical supplies and equipment from our local uh, landfills, which is absolutely huge. So it's going to be it's going to be exciting. It's it's going to be a masterclass. I look forward and without further ado, let me introduce you all to Charles Redding, president and CEO of MedShare. Charles, how are you doing? Good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon, Eric. I'm doing well. I cannot get used to that swooshing sound. It's just, uh, it just sounds <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like a Nike commercial. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for giving us the time and opportunity of being here today. And uh, Adrian, I think you wanted to welcome some of our some of our uh, guests in our live stream as well, right? Yes, Gurlav, uh, Gurav, uh, please forgive me if I've uh, pronounced it incorrectly. Welcome to the show, uh, Mr. Mohib, um, Christy, one of our colleagues. Uh, great to see you, Christy. And um, we are looking for Michelle Cole has joined us from Cincinnati. Welcome, Michelle. Uh, so, yeah, we're looking for a great show. Thank you for spending some time with us. We have someone from uh, Monica as well, help joining us from Mexico. Yes. We have uh, people yes. from all over the world, it seems like. Uh, Claudia has just joined. Uh, hi, Charles. Greeting from Claudia at EAL. Well, Charles, let's just deep dive into uh, into you. I mean, people are really excited uh, to to listen to your story. You have an amazing career and you're leading uh, an amazing organization here in Atlanta that's inspiring a lot of others, including Vector and myself, to give back. Uh, it's a purpose-driven organization, uh, sustainable and responsible. So with that said, Charles, let's just start a little bit with, your, with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your upbringing, your childhood, 
Yeah, I mean, it may be interesting to others. It's kind of boring to me in the middle of it. Uh, I am I'm originally from Atlanta, so I, I'm one of those kids that grew up, you know, right in the city. Um, attended public school systems in the Atlanta area and went off to Georgia Tech uh, to pursue a degree in chemical engineering, which which really opened a lot of doors for me. You know, I'll be the first to say. I think my first job out of college was as a uh, you know process engineer for Goodyear Tire Rubber Company up in Ohio. Uh, did that for a while before joining what I consider to be one of the most outstanding companies in the world, Johnson & Johnson, you know, joined them and, and really had a, a 23-year run uh, with the magnificent healthcare company, uh, providing, you know, engineering expertise, overall management. You know, I worked my way up really to be a, a global vice president of operations. And so I was managing significant supply chains as it relates to um, medical devices uh, for this fantastic companies. And, and we did a lot of wound closure devices. But one thing that I, I truly enjoy was the international experience that I was able to get. So I, I spent a fair amount of time starting up a facility in Mexico. That was very interesting to do uh, wound closure projects and, and then moving to my family to Shanghai, China, you know, where I manage uh, our Asia operations supply chain uh, between India and China for you know, for a number of years and, and then coming back and living in, uh, you know, California and then managing, you know, sites uh, in France, Netherlands, <laughs> Mauritius, you name it. So, so <laughs> it's a really exciting uh, career. And I, and I think, you know, the question often is, you know, what brought me to mess here? And, and I, first of all, I think in doing that, it really hide my sensitivity to the need or the healthcare disparities around the world. Uh, and so being originally from Atlanta, when I got the opportunity to come back here and, and start looking for jobs, I was looking for jobs that, uh, number one, were continue to help people stay within that healthcare industry. And Metsia, you know, came up. Uh, amazing, amazing organization, yeah. right? And, and, and we'll talk a lot more about Metsia and what they do. But if you don't mind me actually backing uh, to your early stages in your career. We have a lot of young people that are listening to us, some people that are actually just recently graduating. So tell us a little bit more about like when you were finishing school, I believe that you're a chemical engineer, isn't that correct? Or yeah. Yes. So, yes, yes. so tell us a little bit more about that time and, and what kind of mentors did you have? What kind of a support system did you have back then in Atlanta? And just tell us a little bit about your career choices uh, at a very early stage. Yeah, so one of the things I would encourage young people to do, just be a sponge, you know, learn as much as you can. I was one of those, even in elementary school, I think I was attending summer school before, you know, summer school was mandatory. At that time, it was elective and you just learn. And I, I can remember, you know, starting a college curriculum when I was still in high school, just doing uh, some engineering research programs over at the uh, Atlanta University Center, where I got an opportunity to do some pretty advanced uh, biomedical research work, right? Uh, doing research work on rat liver mitochondrial functions, you know, testing, you know, weak acid indicators and toxic chemicals and proving, you know, that lead nitrate inhibits, you know, oxygen intake in the brain, which was a core issue for inner city kids. And so, which which led to, a, you know, a disparity in learning. And, and so, you know, a lot of that started early on. I can remember first wanting to be a lawyer for about a minute. And then you wanted to be a lawyer a, before deciding yeah, on before, uh, chemistry? Yeah. That's <laughs> a big was, swing. Was <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was influenced by some incredible teachers. You know, my science teacher, Miss Marjorie Boland, who I, I love dearly. And I think she's uh, uh, probably 97 years old now, but it lives in Atlanta. But she put me on that path of, of learning uh, and having a passion for the sciences and 
had an incredible math teacher too. And so when I decided on a career, I was really looking for that combination of strong science and strong math. And, uh, you know, engineering certainly came up and, right. you know, Georgia Tech being one of the top schools to attend for that. That's no, that's, uh, that's incredible. Do you remember some of the teachings or, or comments that maybe your mentor, um, uh, back then kind of encouraged you not only to switch from maybe lawyer for a little bit to, to being an engineer and then further on that had helped you with your life? Like if you had to pick one role model or a couple of mentors that you've had throughout your life or your earlier career, um, which one, who would you, who'd you pick and, and what have they taught you that made you such an incredibly successful uh, uh, individual? Well, I mean, I, I've had so many, but I think there was one that said something to me and it kind of scared me a little bit, but uh, it was when I was taking courses over at, at Morehouse. I was in high school and, and I, met, I was in this engineering program over there. And one of my professors was Dr. Uh, Matt Bay, and he's a very well-known, he had worked on the atomic bomb project and things like that. Oh, so wow. this was a chemistry, very, very a pioneer in the, in the industry. And, and we're in this class, very impressionable. And, and he said to us, pick a career such that if they had a choice of eliminating people in the world, you'll be so needed that you would be in that group that they would have to keep. And I was like, oh, my God. There's a lot of pressure on a kid to say, pick something such that it, you know, it, it absolutely need it. And so, you know, obviously the sciences and what they call now STEM yeah, that ruled out uh, law, right? Yeah, yeah, they kind of lawyers. I said, man, lawyers, boy, you can be good and bad with them. So I, I, I kind of ruled that out. But uh, no, it, it was really, I think it was very, it left a lasting impression on me. What, what, the way I translated that is, you know, do something, obviously something you're passionate about, but something that can make a difference and, and something that you can use your skills to make a difference in the world. And, and certainly there are many vehicles in which you can do that. But I tell you, the, the sciences for me was just uh, so exciting. Uh, all the possibilities, the learnings and trying to figure out how things, what make things work and then applying it uh, somewhere else. That's, that's great stuff for me. Adrian, go ahead. So um, just want to welcome a couple more uh, guests who have joined us. Uh, we have really some, some international uh, flavor as well this morning. We have uh, Perna from Nepal, uh, Ali from Turkey, Yusri from Egypt, uh, Mervyn right. from Dublin. Mervyn, not sure if that's Dublin, Ohio or Dublin, Ireland. Welcome. Peter, welcome back as well. Thank you for joining us oh, again. Excellent. Ellie, Mohammed. So uh, wonderful to support, uh, support this morning. Thank you. Charles, talking about uh, mentorship throughout your illustrious career, what, what has been your outlook or your philosophy on you mentoring people uh, in order to realize their full potential? Yeah, and I, I do a lot of mentoring. And first of all, everybody that I've hired throughout my career, I stay connected to. I mean, I just feel that investment into them and as people, and, and certainly I keep up with them. But I, I think I learned early on, though, this differentiation between mentorships and sponsors and things in the workplace, which I found very helpful, meaning not only do you need people that can mentor you, and these would be people that maybe have a shared interest, can give you advice along the way, uh, and allow you to make intelligent decisions but then there are also people that can can make things happen for you right um, maybe they are two steps above where you are in your career they're in the, re in the in the room when discussions are coming up and career choices are being made and, and I remember even uh, when I lived in China uh, one of my uh, mentors at the time who had hired me many years ago he was pretty high up he reported directly to the CEO of uh, 
J&J to pay you how. And he said to me, he said, what's your, he said, what, what is your reentry strategy? I said, what are you talking about? He said, you over there, you're going to be out of sight. You're going to be out of mind. Discussions are happening. I want to make sure that you stay relevant and you're able to come back in a meaningful way. You know, so having people uh, that understand the importance of those types of things, which you are, may not be thinking of, because typically, uh, if you're like me, you, you put your head down and you just work very hard. And and you don't always understand that it's more than just working very hard, but you have to, your efforts have to be recognized and the right people have to be aware of what you're going on. So I try to do that, uh, certainly with uh, the people that I mentor, but I'm very careful not to over-advise them, uh, but to give them a framework for consideration, you know, right. uh, certainly because I, I'm a big proponent of learning from mistakes, uh, to be honest with you. And some, you can't prevent them all but you just need a good process for how do you translate that very quickly into a key line. Right. Funny, you, you, you mentioned mistakes. That's exactly what I was going to ask you next is, is uh, do you do you actively encourage or provide the, the comfortable framework uh, that the people you mentor feel feel like they can make mistakes and learn from them without getting, you know, wrapped over the knuckles for it? Yeah, and that's the key. Learning from them. Two keys to it. Number one, you want to make mistakes. I, I enjoy because if you're not – making mistakes, you're probably not trying hard enough, uh, but, but I would, are taking enough risk. And I, and I certainly would encourage making mistakes, but you know, two things I require. Number one, learn from the mistake. And number two, don't make the same mistakes twice. Right. So as long as it, as long as there are different mistakes, make them, uh, right. or, you know, but I prefer not to, to see you make the same mistakes. The same because mistake. then you yes. haven't yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. To the key yeah. learning. Yeah. So, uh, so turning it back directly on you now, could you share with the audience uh, a mistake that you've made um, in your career and uh, what you learned out of it from it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've probably had a bunch of them, but, uh, you know, certainly I think most of my mistakes have been as I've transitioned from, you know, the pure science of engineering and having to more with people, right? And, you know, people aren't predictable. I think we were all. <laughs> and so I, I think a couple come to mind. One, when I was working in Mexico uh, and not taking the time to fully understand the culture the way I should have, you know, I would go down to the production floor and jump right into how things are going, you know, why aren't these rates up? And I get all these blank stares from the people until one of my uh, direct reports pulled me over and said, you may want to ask them how their family's doing. You know, you may want to, you know, yeah. engage it. And, you know, so it just, it just, and then, and so I, uh, I did that. I, I started, I would just come down and just, how was your weekend? Tell me about your kids. They show photos. And then all of a sudden, boy, they were just automatically sharing things that I needed to know before I even asked, you know? So I right, think right. that learning of, of, of uh, please first get to understand the people and the culture has been something that has stuck with me. And another very similar one, I was in uh, San Angelo, Mexico, which is literally in the middle of nowhere next to nothing <laughs> in West Texas. And I had a business unit over 600 people at the time. It was probably one of the largest in J&J. And I had four shifts that I would have to come up and talk to them about the business. And at that time, we were talking about, you know, quality, making sure, you know, our numbers are up and competitive threats coming from Mexico and other places. If you guys don't, you know, and, and I always get blank stares whenever I gave these passionate speeches and I didn't understand why they didn't, it didn't resonate with them, this vision of where we would like to take this organization. So I, I began to just strategically ask a few of them for feedback. And what they share with me was things like, well, I don't have the right chair. 
well, I don't understand why we have to play this music on the radio. And I was like, so again, translating that was that basic needs weren't being met, right? Right. And so the mistake I was making was trying to take people on a, on a journey without first making sure they were prepared. And, and so I had a very candid conversation. I had 13 supervisors at the time around the need to make sure people basic environments or basic needs are being satisfied to make them to position them to be ready, willing, and able for change. Right. And so, you know, again, key learnings. I And so that has stuck with me now. So I'm a big proponent of change management, uh, you know, highlighting the vision, but at the same time, making sure you've got well-equipped change agents that are ready to go on the journey. Because if they're not, boy, you're going to spend a lot of uh, wasted wind uh, right. if they're not ready, ready to go. Right, right. Yeah. Living, in, living in China and India as well, uh, obviously there was, there was some assimilation into the business uh, climate and culture there as well. Any any um, any uh, anecdotes or two from each of those countries as as to how you had to change your way of thinking? Yeah, and, and I think there's some people on here probably from India uh, that would relate to this. It was interesting that the different perspective each saw of each other. And so I had to do this task, task of trying to get India and China to work together. Uh, and, and so, and as you know anything about, they, they saw themselves more competitors, particularly as it related to low market and innovation and things of that nature. So I would ask the, my Chinese team their perspective on India, and they would say, well, we think they spend 90% of the time talking about stuff and 10% of the time doing <laughs> And then I would ask, the, I would ask my uh, Indian team, and they said the same thing. They said, That's we never know what's on their mind. <laughs> they, spend, they spend all their time doing things and 10% explaining what they're, you know. And so my, the challenge I had was really, how do I bridge these cultures? And first, right. I, I went to a deep time of understanding the culture. But what I what I found that both were incredibly passionate about their culture and also the sciences and math. And so I used this strategy. I'm an Einstein fan. And so E equals MC squared, where I told them that our execution was heavily dependent on our ability to, to measure, uh, you know, collaborate and, and, and communicate. And so with that as a platform between the two, we drove the business and they solved the things we th they had in common more so than the things they had apart. And uh, it was just great for me to get those teams together and, and, and even having our, our shared meetings, we had them in Singapore, which was kind of in between the two countries and right. different business meeting and, and setting out. But that equals MC square around measurements, collaboration and communication was really key. And we look for opportunities to drive that. And uh, just both incredibly talented teams that we were able to, uh, introduce market appropriate products, you know, uh, improve supply chain efficiencies and a lot of different things just by just by working together and measuring. Interesting. measuring Thank right yeah. Thanks for sharing that. A couple, um, couple of comments that we're getting in, like Scott, um, big fans of the MedShare team, loving Charles, POD, Mervin, uh, also career, awesome career that Charles has there with so many transitions incredibly rich career and uh, yes charles it's amazing how many different countries and continents and people you have touched and we haven't even gotten to the to the real uh part of the show which is you explain yeah. us how you went into the uh into medshare and to giving back to people but great comment from mervin uh joy daniel uh salia also joining us she's uh she's been here many many times before just like peter uh, mm -hmm. as well Kelly Barner, you have a love. You have to love a leader that is truly listening to what his team needs, even if it's not what he expects to hear. 
Great Bravo, Charles. Yeah, great point. Great point. Great point. Tons and tons of comments. Thank you so much for uh, all of you, like uh, giving us the comments. Keep keep bringing them in. I'm not going to be able to read all of them, but thank you so much. <laughs> uh, There's just so many. Yeah. Mervin confirmed he's from Dublin, Ireland as well. Thanks for that, Mervin. Oh, love so, it. Love it. Real international audience today. Very international uh, audience. And so, Mervin, Charles. My dad, yes. my dad was born in County Clare in a little village, village called Six Mile Village, oh, really? in fact. Yeah, oh, okay. Mervin, Mervin is, probably knows it well. So, yeah, Azalea, welcome as well. So, a real international audience today too. So, Charles, tell us a little bit about like how you are. It sounds to me that you you were raised being uh, a purpose driven. Uh, you have been always kind of been caring for other people. You you were always worried about making a positive impact in the world, and that has been a trait of you throughout your entire career, and it just comes across every time you talk about your team and the things that you're doing. So tell me, tell us a little bit more about this giving uh, mentality that you have. I mean, who was some, how did you get it? Was it something that you saw? Was there like an eureka moment that kind of made you realize that giving back was important in your life? And then just Share a little bit more about your transition towards MedShare before we di deep dive into into MedShare. Yeah, you know that's a, that's a great question. I think the the desire to help others are still in my life very early on from you know from my parents and and watching you know them you know serve. You know, my mother was a uh, a nurse and uh, was always active with her church and just stayed busy. And it wasn't until one day I looked up and I saw my brother who went into the military and, and then he's a, a police officer serving and his son was a fireman serving. And then I've got a sister who's working with other nonprofits and my brother volunteers at this. So he said, wow, man, this, so it, it, it wasn't happenstance, you know, when I see the entire family with this uh, passion for serving, you know, for serving others. And, uh, you know, look here, growing up in Atlanta, um, it, it's such a great environment and seeing, you know, the willingness to help others. And I think, it's what drew me to Johnson Johnson too. The fact that they had a credo, which spoke openly about their commitment, not only to the employees and the, you know, the customers and stakeholders, but also the community. I found that to be very refreshing. It was very overt in terms of our responsibility to give back to our communities. They encourage it, whether it be through an executive exchange programs. And you know, I can remember serving on the board of uh uh, organization up in Gainesville, Georgia called, you know, Channel Challenge Children or Challenge Child, which was mainstreaming kids with disabilities to make sure that they didn't uh, feel, you know, left out of the process. And so it just was happening. It wasn't something that I said, I just want it just was in me, in my, in my DNA. So no surprise when I decided to leave J&J and find another a company to work with, I wanted those elements to exist, the, right. the ability to help others and, you know, make a difference, uh, quite frankly. But I never considered that to be the purview of just nonprofits, right? Right. <laughs> you know, the way I was raised, you just do that from where you are, you know? <laughs> and uh, and then as I saw that there were these, these for purpose, what I call them, for purpose organizations that were out there who entire mandate was centered around a mission was just so refreshing you know, for me. And I, I felt that was a good transition uh, for me as a next step, uh, particularly because of the supply chain. I don't want to get into it, but the supply chain aspect of, of companies like Metshare, which, you know, aren't typical skill sets you find in, in nonprofits, right? Most of them are transaction-based, uh, doing some type of after-school programs. But here lies a company that many of the skills and competencies that I were very successful in, 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 right. in utilizing within J&J &J, were very much needed 
uh, in the nonprofit sector. So just a good, just a good marriage, I think, uh, to, to drive a continuous improvement. No, it sounds like a perfect fit, actually, from for the career that you've had and the exposure that you've had living in all those different countries and then just coming uh, coming to Metcher. And with that said, why don't you just tell us a little bit more for everyone that's listening to us right now. And as I, Adrian mentioned, there's people from literally all over the world. So if you could just give yeah. us a little bit of a summary as of what Metcher is and then tell us a little bit more about Metcher's supply chain and we'll deep dive into Metcher's uh cost and purpose and, and sustainability, which is very interesting to everyone, I'm sure. Sure. So, I mean, we are, Metro is a 501c3, you know, nonprofit humanitarian aid organization. Our mission is to improve the quality of life of, you know, people on our planet. And so what you should gather from that is twofold. One, we're very passionate about uh, helping people, particularly addressing healthcare disparities around the world. Uh, we literally repurpose uh, products that It tended to be discarded in many uh, instances and, and to save lives. I mean, we are constantly looking for uh, sources of quality medical supplies and equipment that we can repurpose to these communities that are struggling to get this quality equipment. So that, that's what we do. Uh, and, and one of the things I've tried to bring to MedShare is when I joined the company back in 2012, our mission was, was bridging the gap between surplus and needs. So it was very... I hate to tell this group, it was very supply chain, uh, our focus. It focused a lot on how we did things. And my passion was always is the why we do it. And so really just trying to bring a, a lot more of that personal contact with the recipients we serve. What are their needs? And how are these products that we're delivering to addressing these healthcare needs? And and so that's the evolution that we've been on. And, and we've translated to just shipping containers of products to now to being very programmatic. You know, we have programs around maternal child health, around infectious disease control and prevention, which, oh, by the way, we've been very active in this COVID-19 right, <laughs> response and delivering yeah, PPE to all these communities, both here in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, we do a lot around disaster relief, which, again, that's a, you can do a whole study on supply chain management as it relates to disaster relief. And one thing I'm, I'm really big on, because this is around sustainability, is we, we offer this biomed engineering training and support, which we help with the installation of equipment. But more importantly, I think we help, we train them on how to use it, repair it, maintain it, keep it going. Uh, we hear statistics about 70% of the equipment, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa, going unused because they either don't know how to repair it, they lack spare parts, they lack manuals. So we address that need uh, as well. And, uh, and because we really truly believe our job is not just to give fish, but we really want to teach communities how to fish and sustain without us. And so a lot of our work is driving that long-term sustainability by you know, partner with these communities to, to help them solve the issues that they are, they are faced with. Adrian? Uh, just a couple of, uh, uh, there's a question come in from, uh, from Claudia. Um, how has e-commerce impacted your supply of donated products? Charles, if you could field that for us. Yeah, I mean, so, so let me talk a little bit about our sources of supply. Maybe that, that'll help answer the question. So, so typically we get surplus products from hospitals Uh, and this come by way of new product introductions. It could be uh, when you're doing a surgery, you take out more than you need for the surgery, but you've already built the patients, and so you can't put it back in the supply cabinet. So, so we get a lot of that, and, and so we partner with hospitals on, and I don't consider it as waste of the hospitals, but we, we partner with them on, on, on providing opportunities to save other lives, right, beyond you know, the sphere. So we do a lot of work with that. 
Uh, we also get products. We have a lot of relationship with direct manufacturers. So with a lot of the, the companies like the uh, Calvin House, the J&Js, and companies that are manufacturing these products <laughs> right. that go to distributors, that go to hospitals, uh, in some cases, they manufacture to donate for us, which has been you know fantastic, uh, particularly as it relates to some of our disaster relief. But also they have manufactured overrides. They have the same situation once they introduce a new product. The hospitals no longer want the old. Uh, so we're able to, there could be a regulatory change uh, that leads to excess. So we get a lot of that. And then we have the individuals that come by and drop, you know, various things off. So, so e-commerce from that standpoint really hasn't, except for we see the introduction of new players that are getting involved, the Amazons, some of the, uh, even some of the uh, uh, drugstores, the Walgreens, CVSs are, are getting in there. We see eBay out there with medical supplies and products. So right. I think the one thing that it, it, it competes with us to a little extent if people think they can find, uh, they can sell things rather than, rather than donate. Uh, but so far, you know, so good. And we really want to make sure our model wasn't set up based on hospitals being inefficient. So, right. so we really, really tried to drive those corporate partnerships. And, and I would say 65% of the products we get donated today come direct from manufacturers or distributors. So not even from the excess from, from hospitals. Right, right. Thanks, Charles. Great explanation. Uh, Claudia, I hope that helped. Um, something I'd just like to bring up, um, Azalea made a, made a great point uh, earlier in, in, the, in the chat. Um, she's uh, she's uh, pursuing her MBA. She's an engineer, and uh, she said she feels there's a, there's a real lack of a focus of um, a curriculum around that college, around uh, leadership and communication. And uh, she, she mentioned it in engineering, and then another guest of ours, uh, Peter, said that, in fact, that's, uh, that's across all fields of study, he feels. And uh, so I just want to turn that over to you as to what your, your thoughts are about that and, and uh, how important you feel that is. No, I, I, think, it's, I think it's incredibly important. And, uh, but, I, but I would say this. I know at Johnson Johnson, we had sort of a leadership uh, institute. And, and so we, we uh, developed what we call standards of leadership and did a lot of training around leadership because we, we saw that coming in that lack of, because it's not something that's intuitive or that you learn uh, while you're in college. You, you, you spend all your time focusing on your, the core of your degree. I think one thing too, schools like Georgia Tech, if I could push tech, I remember when I started there, one of the first freshman seminars, they said to us, we're going to make sure you can talk to your neighbor on the left and your neighbor on the right. Right. That was a key component. And so, so yep, we're going to take electives. You're going to take stuff that has nothing to do with engineering. Yep, you're going to be great communicators. Yep, you're going to make sure you can lead because you're going to have lab groups. You're going to have leaders. and things. So I think there are schools that understand the need you know, for that. Uh, but more importantly, I think there's a lot of companies that spend a lot of time on just instilling leadership. And there's a debate on whether leaders are born or, or learn. Regardless of that, I think there are skill sets that can be obtained you know, with the proper training. And, uh, and certainly for those that are engineers, the knock on engineers always, they aren't great communicators. They aren't, they don't have great interpersonal skills, you know, put them in a lab. And, and so I sort of broke that mold, as you can tell, <laughs> which, which is why, you know, in my career early on, I, I sort of switched from straight engineering over to management because I was able to demonstrate those key skills yeah. and competencies, right. particularly related that. to people. Yeah. yeah. So I think if they recognize that and couple with a good sound engineering background, boy, you can, you can really go far because it's not enough to just lead a business, but to know the ins and outs of how the business runs. Boy, that's a great, that's a great combination. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Charles. Uh, and great point, uh, Zalia and, and Peter. Thanks for your input there. Um, Charles, great big broad question for you now. Um, what is um, Mitch's current plans uh, and what are your future plans? And um, as an aside to that as well, are there regions in the world that you that you haven't covered yet uh, and you plan to or regions that you're in, but you feel you're not as strong um, as you'd like to be? Yeah, probably yes. So <laughs> all of us, you know, right now, right now, Mesh here, we've we've touched we, we've touched over a hundred different countries, you know, in the world. So it's probably about two hundred countries in the world. So yeah, so it's probably a hundred others that we don't. But our focus is primarily in those uh, those countries where the need is, and so a lot of our work tends to migrate toward Africa, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, I would say the Caribbean basin, uh, Central South America, in some cases. So so we're not one to do a lot of work in Europe or you know, the U.S., but we do some things. So there's always opportunities for us. Uh, and one of our key metrics and one that I uh, wanted to really stress for Mesh here, we measure the number of people, sir. We feel that's a good indicator of the reach of our organization. And so we serve anywhere. We've, we've, we've gone between, you know, one to two. We serve on average about two million people a year, which, which sounds on the surface like a great number. But we just went through, I just took the board through a uh, – a visionary exercise where we took a look at our strategic plan, confirmed it. But I wanted to paint the vision of, uh, you know, five and 25. I wanted to position the organization to be able to serve five million people or more by the year 2025. Right. And so that's going to fundamentally change a lot of our strategic imperative, which we have three. One is we want to drive greater recipient impact. So we're doing a lot of work to make sure the work we're doing is impactful for the recipient, not impactful for that year but it has to be meaningful, address the needs of our recipients. Our second one is around, uh, I want to grow, but I want to do it in a capital efficient way. So I introduced this capital efficient growth, meaning that it's not about planning metro flags, opening up more warehouses, you know, getting the organization understanding this about inventory terms, right? We want to get that inventory in, get it out, get it to the people need. I hate the word warehouse. I love the word distribution center, right? So I don't want to just warehouse things and have them sitting there and not. But so we want to grow. But again, I want to do it in a capital efficient way. So we're going to have more partnerships around uh, delivering product, getting product in and getting out. And then the third one was more of an internal. I want to drive and introduce the notion around organizational excellence. And, and really create an environment to work as one next year. Right now, I have uh, three regions in which I have a Western region, uh, Northeast and Southeast, where we have warehouses. But right. that's not how I want to measure our growth. Our growth want to be is, you know, how many regions of the world are we touching uh, with these life-saving products that we're introducing? So just getting the organization <laughs> around Absolutely. that. So I'm expired. I'm, I'm very excited about what that's going to mean in terms of, Increased fundraising, increased partnerships, products, and uh, ultimately serving more people and improving, you know, improving health outcomes for a lot of marginalized communities around the world, including here in the U.S. We do a lot of work with uh, safety net clinics, which serve uh, in- uninsured or underinsured individuals, and we provide support to them as well. Fantastic. Great. Wonderful. Very ambitious plans, and, and I, I know you'll get there. Enrique, any uh, comments you want to run through? Well, yes, let me, uh, again, it's been super hectic, uh, Charles, because I've been trying yeah. to read the comments and they're just pouring in. And <laughs> you're really, really engaging a lot of people out there and it's around the world. So I'm trying to do my right. best for the audience to filter some of the questions and comments. But Kelly Bardner, I think it's a critical point that Metro was not built on the assumption that hospitals will always be inefficient. 
Having multiple sources of supply that allow you to cheer for the other players in the supply chain is critical. That's great. Claudia has another question, really good question. Uh, Charles, question, what role do transportation partners play in your ability to meet your mission? Well, great, great. I mean, companies like Vector, I mean, you, you know, certainly we, part of our mission is we have a lot of uh, transportation partners that, you know, UPS, you know, being one, uh, Flexport. Uh, so we, we depend on, number one, we have, we, so we'll talk a little bit about our model, but we provide sort of an end-to-end solution for our recipients, meaning we take care of all of the transportation. So once we but so we have a, a series of uh, freight forwarders that, you know, we work with and logistics companies that keep up with a lot of the requirements around the world. And we've been really fortunate to have some great, great partners that have, uh, they provide intelligence for us. They have provided gift and kind shipping, you know, every year that we don't have to pay for. Uh, they have partnered with us on delivery of uh you know, just in time supplies, particularly in the disaster relief. I can't tell you the number of times that we've reached out to some of our shipping partners to help us fly things in uh, to a country that need it right away as opposed to putting it on a uh, container. So it's critical in transportation. Uh, you know, Randy, my, my COO, and, and we sit down and talk all the time about, you know, who are the least lists of our key transportation partners and how are we uh, staying connected, you know, how we, we try to diversify too as well. We try to mix it up so we don't have all of our eggs and certainly in one basket. But uh, Missionary Expeditors is another one who does a lot of work in the uh, humanitarian aid space. Uh, but it's really based on capabilities to get into a lot of the countries uh, that we want to get into. And we find there are various differences. Some some can and some, some cannot, uh, depending on where. You know, the thing about our work is that we don't go to easy places. Right. <laughs> Usually right. where, where right. there's poverty, those are pretty those are pretty difficult places <laughs> to get into. So having yeah, the uh, transportation part. Yeah, exactly. So it's not it's not shipping the ground to Florida. Uh, yeah, one could wish. So, so typically we want the product, the, the, the uh, expertise of our partners to, to come forth and help us, you know, help us with our deliveries. Yeah. Great, great point. Christy Porter brings up a great topic. She would love to hear a little bit more about supply chain and disaster relief. Uh, I know you guys are big and you do all that. Could you tell us a little bit more about just specifically disaster relief and, and how do you kind of react sure. to emergencies like the ones we've seen so many times. Yeah, we've really changed in that. I mean, we used to be so or try to be responsive, and I wanted us to be a little bit more predictive. And so we we created a disaster relief program. So we are we are actively looking for partners that we allow us to pre-position products uh, before disasters occur. Also, the fundraise before disasters occur, so we can respond in a, in a quicker manner. And so we have a lot of partners. So the, one of the reasons we were able to respond, we ship. I think we. We uh, distribute over 4.8 million units of PPE during this wow. COVID-19, right. which is incredible. And the, and I would say we, we sent the first two to three million directly into China when it was uh, a big issue at the time and then and, and evolved. And the reason we were able to do that is because we had it on hand, because we already had partners for disaster relief. And we know that these are the products that are needed across all disasters. A lot of times it's the, the PPE type products. So we were sitting there with uh, a sufficient inventory that allow us to. So we really, so so this this notion of disaster preparedness is something that we're trying to embrace and talk to our partners about. We had we had uh, transportation partners already identified uh, that we uh, we could we could work with uh, in the event of disasters. 
We had uh, product suppliers that allowed us to reach out to them in the time of the disaster. So, so when I think of supply chain, I remember when I was at JNJ, we used to always, we used to divide it into four buckets. We used to talk about it in terms of planning, sourcing, make, and deliver. So I've carried, so think about that, plan, source, make, deliver. That was how we broke down a supply chain. And I've done the same thing at next year. We look at the planning, understanding, we have a pretty good intel in terms of, you know, types of disasters, when they occur, you know, what's needed. Uh, sourcing, we want to have a, a, a great number of suppliers already identified, transportation partners, GIK partners, and a good protocol around how we would respond. So we develop a lot of that. Uh, the make for us is really comes around the volunteers and, and the inventory and making sure we had, you know, these types of products in place. And, and then certainly the uh, uh, distribute uh, spoke to our distribution network with our partners and, and getting it out there. So that's our philosophy. But I think what I want to leave you with is it's not enough to just be after the fact. You've got to plan ahead. And because a lot of our next year, we're not first responders. So we find most of our work occurs during what we call the uh, recover, rebuild phase. That when, when we go in there, they're trying to, you know, rebuild that health system that has been devastated right. by disaster, things like that. We found out we're, we're much more impactful during that phase than, you know, first responders. Now, during the first responders phase, we equip what we call these medical mission teams. And these are usually medical teams that are being expanded to these areas. And uh, we, we equip them, you know, with uh, some key medical supplies so they can go there and render and render help. That, that answers your question. We put a lot of thought into it. No, it's, it sounds yeah. that um, I'm pretty sure you did. And it sounds like you actually are incredibly uh, busy helping others. And what Metcher is doing is incredible. It's inspiring. And, uh, and we thank you for, for really uh, leading by the example. Um, another question uh, that I had in terms of uh, as we kind of wrap up the show, and again, the comments and questions keep coming and we could probably be here for at least another two, three hours. And we'll probably have to reschedule uh, another one. And <laughs> Why not? Let's do it again. <laughs> it, it's been fun. So I would love to actually yeah. do it again. And thank you for sharing yeah. all your, uh, your story. Um, one, one thing that you would like to challenge our audience on, I mean, as we close the program, what would be one thing that you would like to challenge the audience uh, and, and maybe inspire them to do? Yeah, I, you know, it's the same challenge I, I, just, entered, I just issued to my board and, and to the staff. Too. I think fundamentally we've got to change our mindset and not consider organizations like MedShare as charities and begin to think more around philanthropy. And, and the key difference being, you know, charities often respond to some issue and they try to give things to address it at the time. You know, that's noble. Uh, it helps. But I think when you talk about philanthropy, you have more of a partnership and understanding of ongoing needs. You begin to fundamentally get at the causes of these issues. What is causing, you know, fragile health system? What is causing? And, and so you have ongoing programs that you can support continuously and make sure you understand need and then, you know, align programs with donors to, to address that need. I think that that fundamental shift and and how or nonprofits and look is something we all have to just change. These are incredible organizations out there doing incredible work, but we want to make sure it's sustainable and not just continue to put band-aids. And then the same thing that caused the laceration, laceration is still there. Let's, let's attract those things that led to the laceration to begin with. And, uh, so we encourage everyone, if you can help us and not just MedShare, there's a lot of incredible companies similar to MedShare trying to do this work. Uh, be a part. Be a part of the community. 
help out in any way you can right. volunteer donate your money your time your treasure you know time talent and treasure is what we always talk about right. so uh just get involved just get involved joshua uh so insightful charles reading predictive disaster relief as opposed to reactive well well done sir a lot of uh congratulatory emails and texts coming in so definitely well done uh kelly interesting reflecting on the difference between charity and philanthropy that deserves a pause for thought for sure mm -hmm. Christy, excellent point about charity, biz philanthropy. Um, Charles, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving us a little bit of your time today. And uh, before we let you go, where can uh, our audience uh, contact you, contact MedShare? What can they do? Because it feels like everyone's inspired and, and maybe it could be a good time for them to go ahead and act, participate and be involved as you suggested that we should do. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, thanks everyone for uh, participating. Your questions were rich, great. I enjoyed it. Uh, you can find out more about MedShare. We have, our website is www.medshare.org. That's M-E-D-S-H-A-R-E.org. Uh, there's a lot more information about our organization, the programs we have. So uh, do that. If you're near one of our facilities in Atlanta, uh, San Francisco, California, or in the New York, you know, Secaucus, New Jersey area, come out, you know, volunteer. At one of our sites you can come see one of our warehouses meet our staff and uh, learn more about uh this great movement that we're on and this it's truly a movement and we don't look at it as just a, a sedentary act of kindness this is a, a something we're trying to philosophically change in our world and that's to address this gap in healthcare disparities and, and make sure everybody feels like they are deserving um, you have a, a lot of supporters and absolutely very powerful words. And uh, just for everyone that's listening that actually has the opportunity to go and visit MedShare and volunteer for them, we did that as Vector uh, and um, before the pandemic, and we'll do it as again. Uh, and it was a great team bonding uh, great exercise team. too, right? So it's not yeah. only, yeah. you're not only helping people, you're not only actually packaging all these amazing things that are going to save lives, but at the same time, you're actually doing something for the team. And it was a great event. So I, I will strongly, Thank strongly you, recommend it. If there's any companies out there in Atlanta or San Francisco or wherever else, uh, MedShare is participating actively and has a warehouse just use it as a good excuse to, uh, to uh, hang out with your with your excuse to do something your, good. It's a good excuse to uh, do something different, get out of the office, help someone, and just uh, do it as and a team a, bonding. There's a wonderful Mexican restaurant pretty close to to you as well. <laughs> that's that's, right. that's true. What, yeah, what was the name of that, Adrian? It was, I don't know, but it was incredible. It's a little hole in the wall, but man, it was. It was oh, so do you know right. what we're talking about, Charles? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> we will have to find that out and then go together. So I'm very discerning with my Mexican food as well. I'm, so. I'm Mexican, so, <laughs> it was, hey, it so was we need great. to talk. So you know what I mean, though, right? We will, we, will let, we will find out and let you know where that place is because it's amazing. I'm a taco tote kind of guy, you know, down in Mexico. So. <laughs> Before the show, uh, we got to go back and maybe do another one just on food because I know I, it's sure we can do that. We, we love can, food, we as well. but no. Yeah. Thank you so much, Charles, for being uh, with us today. Thank you very yeah. much for the audience. And again, we'll schedule something in the next, in the future to see how you guys are doing. And thank you once again for what you do. Right. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Adrian, that was uh, that was fun. That was uh, incredible. That was great. Hey. Eh? So many, so many things. So many. I mean, tons of uh, notes and comments, as Scott Luton would say, uh, seventeen pages worth of notes. Um, 
it was it was a great great interview. I enjoyed talking to Charles. They have yeah. he runs a tight ship at Metchir. Yeah, it's good, man. It's good. He's a no. He's a good. He's a. He's nice. He's a. I like him. Um, yeah, it's a. It's a. It's a good organization. Um, no, I think the flow is great. I like the. I like the format, man. It's nice. Yeah. No, good question. So, and Adrian, uh, before we close it to our audience, uh, is there um, what was your favorite part? If you actually had to pick one of the uh, things that Charles mentioned today, what what which one would you live with? I just. I think the. Um, how he how he, he empowers his staff uh, i think the collaboration uh what he's learned from all his overseas experience uh on managing teams um and and um you know getting the getting the best out of people and working together as a united force i think is is really refreshing to hear that um i also love the format and that um uh the the our, our guests that joined us uh first of all thank you to everyone for joining us but uh it was great to see all the interaction between the guests uh, they were commenting, commenting on each other's posts and, and chipping in. So I think I think that was wonderful to see that happening. I, uh, I agree. It sounds like it's a good community, right? I mean, you see yeah. Peter Peter coming and Asalia has been with us for a couple of shows. And it's a, it's great to see that kind of camaraderie forming. And hopefully we can all kind of funnel some of that into giving back, making Absolutely. this a positive world and helping organizations like Medshare. Um Once again... For everyone that listened to us today, it's a pleasure being here. And if you enjoy this conversation with Charles Redding and Metchier, just feel free to join us at supplychainnow.com. You can visit our website. You can uh, sign up for the podcast, wherever the podcasts, uh, wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can also visit our YouTube channel. Once again, this has been another incredible episode of Logistics with Purpose. Thanks to Charles. Thanks to Mitch here. And Adrian, thanks to you too. It was fun. It was. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Enrique. Great to be a part of this. Thanks for everyone for joining us. Been a pleasure. See you, see you guys. Take care now. See you again soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>